0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from the second chapter of Hebrews, verses 10 and 11. This is the word of God. For it was fitting that he... For whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their faith perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers." All right, let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that we can gather here this morning to dive into your word, to be encouraged by um, you speaking to us, and what a privilege it is to, to know you, to have access to you, and I uh, just thank you for this morning as it starts to look a little bit like spring, just a reminder of new life that we have in you. Amen. All right, please be seated. Okay, by show of hands, I'm curious who has watched at least one episode of The Crown. Okay. Now keep your hands up if you've finished all four seasons. Okay, good. Now keep your hands up if you spent more time on Netflix than in your Bible last year. I'm just I'm just kidding. Just giving you a hard time. Um, so Ruth and I, my wife, we've watched all four seasons of The Crown and for me, I think it was actually somewhat educational, helped to justify watching it, but I was, you know, pretty ignorant of recent British history, and uh, I'd recommend watching The Iron Lady about Margaret Thatcher if you haven't watched that one yet. But one component of the crown that really intrigued me, and I'd imagine many other Americans, is just the constant pomp and circumstances that would always surround the Queen. Um, it seems so foreign, literally, but even perhaps at times a little bit silly. Uh, but it's still an important part of tra- tradition today. Um, And we've got a picture above. So I had another one, too. But this one is from 1958. And the funny thing is, if you look at the picture from when she last opened Parliament in October 2019, it doesn't look hardly any different at all. Everybody's in the same spots, same wigs, down in front, same robes and everything. It's just color. Um, but other than that, it really hasn't changed since uh, 1958 when it was first televised. Um, she only missed two. This is her 65, uh, 65th one. She's only missed two, on um, both of while being pregnant. Um, but the process is described in detail on a website that's dedicated to the royal family. I'm just going to read a couple snippets. So think about this tradition. Members of the House of Lords wear appropriate ceremonial robes and judges of the High Court of Justice wear their wigs. Before either house can proceed to public business, the Queen must officially open Parliament by addressing both houses in the Queen's speech. The speech is carried by the Lord Chancellor in a special silk bag and presented to the Queen on bended knee. And so the tradition continues here. It's very elaborate. And aside from these kind of annual um, events, There's countless daily rules, even in just palace life. Even being part of the queen's family, there is a way that is fitting to behave in the presence of a queen. Now, contrast this to what the author of Hebrews now portrays as a fitting reception for his true majesty, the Duke of Heaven. Now, Jesus has been introduced in the first few verses of this letter as heir of all things co-creator of the universe, one that is radiant with glory, the sustainer of all things. He's far superior to angels. You know, everything is in subjection to Jesus. These are amazing statements, like magnificent titles. Of the billions of people that have existed and the myriads of angels, not one of these things could be said of anyone else, only of Jesus. So what sort of reception is fitting for his divine majesty? We might expect the author to insert a description here very similar to what we see in the book of Revelation about the heavenly throne room. But the author tells us in verse 10 what is fitting for the one by whom and for whom all things exist, the one that brings many to glory, the founder of salvation. For this majestic Jesus, it was fitting that he should suffer. And you're like, what? One more time, what is suitable for Jesus? Suffering. Suffering and shame of the worst kind. And at first, this doesn't make any sense at all. This is point one in your outline. Suffering is surprisingly suitable for salvation. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Christ crucified was a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. To think of worshiping a crucified Lord didn't make any sense, and it still doesn't in some ways. Crucifixion was a public and brutal execution, and Jews looked at that as a curse. And I'll be honest, I often think of the cross a lot more like if you put up the next picture, we see this beautiful sunrise behind it. And it's a symbol of hope and freedom, new life, victory over death. And it certainly is that symbol today for us. But we cannot forget the suffering and the shame that came first. And if you've watched The Passion of the Christ, you're familiar with what those images might look like. It is a gruesome thing. And we cannot get here without Jesus' first enduring the scorn of the cross. So why why this pain and scorn? Now we acknowledge here that the cross was ultimately necessary for our salvation. And we adhere to a humbling and a radical gospel. It's, it's really a scandalous mix of injustice that God the Son should die and that we rebels should be forgiven for free. And the gospel is undeniably biased in our favor. And so we should quickly and gratefully receive it, knowing full well it is undeserved. So, knowing that it is undeserved, isn't it interesting that the author here would use the word fitting? Is it right that Jesus should suffer? Is it proper that the Creator should be scorned by His creation? Is it suitable that the error of all things should be despised and rejected? By man's wisdom, certainly not. But by God's plan, without a doubt, yes. It was fitting <clears throat> for Jesus to suffer. Not in any part due to Jesus' character, but exclusively and entirely due to Jesus' role in his mission. As the founding pioneer of salvation, it is proper that he would suffer. And perhaps just as unexpected as it is for us to hear that he should suffer, is the rather shocking reason that the author gives. It's so that Jesus would be made perfect. Now, if you're like me, you probably have a few questions going through your mind of why would Jesus need to be made perfect and what would that even look like? But before we go there, I want to step back for just a few minutes and frame our context a bit. So it's important to see this building argument that the author is making in order to understand our passage here as well. So we want to consider why is this statement introduced here about it being fitting? And it begins with the word for, so it connects us to the previous thought. So in a way, our passage, verses 10 through 18, is really an expansion on verse 9, which comes at the end of a transitional section from verses 5 through 9. So I'll give a painfully brief summary of Hebrews thus far, so you can see where this fits in. So from the outset, the author of Hebrews continues to make an unbroken and building argument. He weaves in different Old Testament scriptures as proofs for his statements, and he also inserts uh, warnings as logical results from the unfolding theology. And our book opens with an assertion of Jesus' divinity. The author explains that God has spoken through various prophets before, but now he's given his final message through his son, and that message is as superior to the angel's message as Jesus' is superior to the angel's. So Jesus' teaching is superior to the Old Testament law, and the warning is we would do well to pay careful attention to it. In verses 5 through 9 of chapter 2, the focus transitions from Jesus' superiority to his humanity. And he expounds on this seemingly contradictive statement of Jesus being supreme and also condescending to be human. And last week, Rick provided a helpful overview on how Jesus fulfilled Psalm 8, which is what's quoted there. The main point being that where man failed in God's role of dominion to man, Jesus succeeded. But not as a replacement, rather as a substitute for man. Therefore, Jesus is a perfectly qualified man. Verse 9 then gives us the mission for Jesus' incarnation. He became a man to to live a brief earthly life to experience death for everyone. And this becomes the impetus to our passage. So if I were to paraphrase verse 10, connecting those thoughts, it was proper that Jesus would suffer, like all men do, to be the perfect pioneer of salvation. So we come back to this. It was fitting that he who became man to lead men to salvation would do so by a means that all men experience, namely suffering and death. He came to taste death for all, and as verses 14 and 15 indicate, to destroy the devil's power over death by his own death, therefore delivering man from the fear of death. And as we know too well, you cannot be human without encountering death and suffering. Furthermore, as verses 17 and 18 indicate, Jesus is the perfect priest for mankind, because he himself became man and experienced what man universally experiences. So our passage, therefore, has a singular focus. There's dispersed components, there's multiple pieces spread across kind of interjected thoughts, but it's all building to one point. And that point actually starts in verse 5. And that point is the essential and efficacious humanity of Jesus. So Jesus' humanity naturally involves suffering, as ours does. Jesus' humanity is a prerequisite to him securing salvation. Jesus' humanity identifies us as family with him. And Jesus' humanity produced... Empathetic and effective wisdom. And although there's there's more subtle details and components of this passage that you could study, I think there's three primary points that stem from this theme of Jesus' humanity. And that's how I've structured our remaining time in your outline. So we'll look at verses 10 through 11 and 14 to 15 to point us to a perfect and propitiating pioneer. And then we're going to examine verses 11 through 14 to build a basis for a better big brother. And lastly, we'll look at verses 16 through 18 for how we have a holy hybrid high priest. And so church, I just want to show you this morning that this passage is good news. It's comforting, it's freeing, it's encouraging. I mean, God's word is always a blessing, but at times it can be very convicting. And although it's always edifying, it's not always uplifting in that regard. But I think this passage this morning, when we come to it, it's truly Uplifting. It's good news. So I hope this morning that you can soak in the encouraging truths of our text. And as we move through the details of this passage, I just want you to take time to think about what it's saying about Jesus and about you as being found with your identity in Jesus as his child. So let's move to point two in your outline and we return to our question Why would Jesus need to be made perfect? Again, this has nothing to do with his character or his morality but everything to do with his qualification for the role he's taking. Now, based on the author's description of Jesus throughout the rest of the letter, there's no hint that Jesus would be lacking in any way. And the word for perfect, or to perfect, means to also complete, make whole, or to mature into fullness. So this perfection, or this completion then, it's not an addition or a cultivation of new traits to compensate for a deficit, but rather it's a fuller expression of eternal characteristics that are being now enacted. And what I mean is that Jesus has always been loving, always been merciful and faithful. He's always been able to save from the beginning of time. But it wasn't until he took the form of a human savior and later a high priest that he gave full expression to these attributes. The Amplified Bible, it adds clarifying statements to help, and it sheds fuller light here, I think, uh, by adding to the second part of verse 10, it says this says should make the author and founder of their salvation perfect through suffering, bringing to maturity the human experience necessary for him to be perfectly equipped for his office as high priest. And Wayne Grudem, he offers, I think, a helpful analogy about a woman obstetrician who has written a book about childbirth, but then gives birth to her own child and having been a mother now can actually relate to um, the women that are in labor, other pregnant women. In a similar way, I think Jesus, becoming man and enduring suffering, he provided that experience and relatability that accompanies the need for an ideal pioneer of salvation. And we'll see a similar concept in verses 17 and 18. It says that he will become um, merciful and faithful high priest. That's not because he's not those things already, but it's because we would not have seen these attributes on display in the same light unless he had not embraced humanity. So suffering did have a part to play in perfecting a pioneer for perishing people. So looking again at verse 10, we see two strong indications or confirmations that salvation is God's doing and not man. The first is it says Jesus is bringing many sons to glory. And this word bringing is actually to take hold of. It implies that you take hold and you carry it with you. Second, Jesus is called the founder of salvation, and this word appears in other translations as author, captain, pioneer, leader, originator, source. And it comes from the Greek word archagon, where we get our word, um, archetype. And the important distinctive is that it means one who comes first in a long procession, or an originator that remains the leader. So perhaps a good English equivalent would be a pioneering leader. So both of these words, bringing and pioneer, they show that this is Jesus doing and still active. And this is different than just clearing a path for salvation, making it accessible and then stepping aside. Instead, he has taken the initiative to save, to bring and continue to carry people along. And so we ask, how does he save people? How did he do that? And we see it's by death. So let's read verses 14 through 15. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus pioneered salvation by destroying the devil's power over death, and he did this through his own death. He beat the devil at his own game. The devil thought he had won the war. He had killed the Messiah. But what seemed to be the end of Jesus was actually the end of the death grip. And Jesus destroyed death's power by his own death and resurrection. One commentator drew an analogy here about how David took Goliath's sword to cut off his own head and then used that same sword to go off and win future victories. Now, it goes without saying, death is still around. still has a 100% success rate. So, in what sense was death's power truly destroyed. Well, the word that's used for destroyed here, it means to nullify, to render powerless, to make idle or without effect. So Jesus didn't eliminate or eradicate death, but he did strip it of its power. Death is still inevitable, but it's not invincible. So just as Jesus rose, so his followers will also rise. And while death may take believers from this world, it cannot hold them. Now note that Jesus did not deliver people from death, but from the fear of death. His victory over death gives us hope for a new and a better life. And this hope has set countless people free, from enslavement to fear. And so while each of us here can fully expect to die, we can still say with Paul, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? But if we are honest with ourselves, how many of us could truly say that this morning? Would you describe yourself as being free from the fear of death. My guess is that fewer could actually say this now, today, than could have perhaps a year ago. And it takes intentional reminders and habits to maintain perspective. As Alex shared with us two weeks ago, without intentionality, we drift. Drifting takes no effort. It's passive movement. There's no such thing as staying spiritually static. You're either moving with culture, or you're actively moving against it. So that's one of the beautiful things about having our Lord's Supper service. It's a continual reminder to focus on the cross, the things that matter. Because if we don't continually realign our perspective, your culture and your circumstances gradually will. So let me ask you, living in a culture that idolizes health and safety, are you free from the fear of death? When COVID is mentioned in every news report, in company emails, on Spotify ads, and nearly every conversation, it does not have a negligible effect. When there's flashing signs on the roadside about COVID and every person you see is masked, that doesn't have a neutral influence. When activities are canceled, stores are closed, and your forehead gets scanned, it's not like your mental state is completely unaffected. So with regards to believers that are drifting back toward this fear that we have been freed from, the cultural current is very strong indeed. Indeed. So we certainly want to be wise and cautious of matters of health and safety. You know, sticking our head in the sand and being careless, that's just reckless. So we can't be cavalier about the fragile life that God has given us. All life is valuable. We need to seek to care for people. But there is a big difference between being careful and being fearful. Everyone's situation is different about what a wise response looks like. Factors of age, health conditions, work environment, all the things that we regularly hear. There are too many nuances to give a helpful example of what the difference might be between careful and fearful in terms of COVID. But I'm not going to hesitate to say that many in the American church have succumbed to a culture of fear. Many members, even in the younger generations, are especially fearful over their health. It's not just careful, it's being anxious. It's not cautious, it's anxious. And many leaders are fearful, perhaps not specifically over death, but certainly of man, of publicity and perception. And liability, whatever the flavor or reason, the church has been living in a year that's been filled with fear. And COVID is too sensitive a topic to talk through. How might that actually be handled? That's not my goal here. My goal is simply to point to the passage and affirm, yeah, we should not be afraid of death. So don't read into what I'm saying about proper COVID precautions. Instead, examine yourself and ask, how has the culture affected me? Am I I fearful of my own death? Now, let's not forget the original audience. Let's not get distracted with what we're going through too much so. Let's remember, they needed reminders why they were delivered from the fear of death as well. Now, at the time of this letter's writing, there was increasing persecution. Hence, all the warnings to stand firm in the book of Hebrews. Now the temptation was for the original audience to turn back to Jerusalem or to Judaism, and we keep seeing that here, partially because it's familiar and they're comfortable with it, but partially and maybe largely so because it was an approved or a sanctioned religion by the Roman Empire. Now, with how old Judaism was, it had kind of been grandfathered into the Roman Empire. There was so much passion and devotion and controversy surrounding, you know, defending and upholding it to where they didn't want to touch it. So they were allowed to be exempt from emperor worship. Now Christianity was new and was not exempt. So Christians that did not bend the knee to the emperor were very much at risk of being ostracized, imprisoned, or worse. So the temptation was, rather than face persecution or death, why not just turn back to uh, Judaism? Get that get-out-of-jail-free card. The temptation was to rationalize, you know, it's not all that different, right? It's, It's the same God. But the author has already asserted that we must pay closer attention to the gospel because Jesus' message is as superior to the law as Jesus' is to the angels. And he concludes his first warning saying, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And there's five more warnings to come, and each of them with increasing severity. So let's not forget, there are believers today that face this type of fear of death still. In hostile countries, there's a real threat of death, tied directly to their faith. And their personal beliefs are reason enough to have a target on their head. And to believers facing this type of opposition, Jesus offers these words from Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear fear him who will destroy both soul and body in hell. I mean, wow, that's a pretty tough Tough statement, like suck it up kind of sort of thing. Life is tough, but we cannot fear. By all means, we should be careful and prudent, but never at the expense of becoming fearful or faithless. So let me conclude this point on freedom from the fear of death with a reminder that this world of death is only temporary. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor pain, nor crying anymore, for the former things have passed away. So we are in the already but not yet of conquered death. The power of death has already been nullified, and one day death itself will be completely eliminated. This brings us to the next set of verses, and to point three in your outline. That Jesus is a better big brother for believers. So reading verses 11 through 14. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, Behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. I mean, this is great news, right? This is almost unbelievable. I already think it's a little unthinkable that Jesus would give his life to save us, but it's astounding now that he'd actually want to identify as a brother to helpless sinners like us. It would seem more fitting for God to kind of have a long-distance mercy and just to spare us out of grace based on our pitiful condition. Maybe kind of like a benevolent medieval king riding on a high horse, just tossing coins out to the beggars on the street side, but not getting off, not associating with them. But Jesus came down from his throne and invested his whole being and his whole life with needy and rebellious humans. Now, note that the theme that is woven into our whole passage here is that Jesus is a very personal Savior, Jesus paved the way himself. He didn't just change the rules. He didn't just unlock the gate to salvation. He came down and directly participated himself, pioneering the way of salvation and at his own expense. How different is that from the kingdoms of men that are expanded by the blood of their subjects? Instead, we see Jesus freeing us, welcoming us into his kingdom by the expense of his own blood. And what's more, you aren't just a a street sweeper or a doorkeeper in God's kingdom. You are Christ's brother. And what an undeserved title. Let's quickly look at the four reasons that the author gives us for why we are called Jesus' brothers. First, is because we do not bring him shame. We have been sanctified, made holy and pure. Now, without this, we would have given him reason to be ashamed, So let's fully recognize the only reason why he identifies with us is because of what he has done, not because of who we are or what we bring. Our natural self is completely out of place. It's far worse than like a fifth grader who wants to be dropped off on the corner because they're embarrassed of their mom. This is much worse than that. This is ashamed, disgraced. It's more like a dream that I suspect many of us have had when you're either at a party or school, at work, and you show up and somehow you're in your underwear and you don't, you don't know why. right? I've had several of those where I'm, I come to a networking event, I'm in my dress shirt and my boxers, and I wonder, how did this even happen? Like, What a terrible lapse of judgment. Why did I think about this? Um, perhaps this is what it would be like if we were to try to join the family of God by our own merit, by our own works, realizing what a terrible lapse of judgment that we could ever think of fitting in on our own. And just when you realize your utter disgrace and your need for suitable clothing, Jesus comes and brings a text from his own wardrobe of righteousness and says, My father's going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. Now, the second reason that Jesus can call us brothers is that we share the same source. It's interesting because this word here is translated source, origin, father, family, or actually no word at all because there actually is not a word here in the Greek. The text literally says, all are of one. And so translators have had to infer, what does this one refer to? It could be the Father God, it could be Abraham, it could be Adam, it could be just generic humanity. Um, most have elected for a reference to God the Father in the context of Jesus' Sonship, but the interesting thing is, no matter which of those four you choose, they all make the same point. Jesus identifies with you, in that we share the same Father, and we share the same humanity. The third reason that we are brothers to Jesus is that the Old Testament text indicated that the Messiah would view men as his brothers. So the author provides three quotations, each from a messianic passage. Verse 12 is from Psalm 22, verse 22, which the audience would have immediately identified with Christ. The first 21 verses of Psalm 22 are a righteous man's plea for deliverance. And as you're probably familiar with, they parallel events um, surrounding Christ's crucifixion. If you haven't read Psalm 22 in that light, you should, do, you should add that to your to-do list. Um, but starting at verse 22, quoted in verse 12 of our passage, the psalm turns to a declaration of trust, and the righteous one praises God. So if the speaker of the, verse, of the first 21 verses is clearly foreshadowing Jesus, then it can be safely inferred that the speaker of verse 22 is also Jesus as well, which is... What's in our passage here? So note that Jesus is offering praise in the midst of the congregation. Showing that he's identifying with and among men. And then the next two verses, or next two um, quotations from verse 13, those come from Isaiah chapter 8. Now the first statement of, I will put my trust in him, is quite generic. And it's in multiple areas in scripture. But the last part of verse 13 is not. And they're found together in Isaiah eight seventeen and 18. And I think the point's a little unobvious at first, um, but this passage is in the context of waiting through difficulties. And it shows that even Jesus had to trust God and hope in God amid trials. So he can identify with this common human experience of needing to trust through trials. Furthermore, the reference of children shows his familial identification with God's people. He truly did live with and among people. Now, the fourth reason that Jesus identifies us as brothers is that he also took on flesh and blood. The Bible is very clear that Jesus not only lived an earthly life with humans, but he took on human form as well. And so the logic of the incarnation is death had to be defeated by death, and you can't die unless you're human. So Jesus became human. And him becoming human is, is very different than how you know, a god in Greek mythology might come down to earth and still remain immortal. Jesus became a true human made of the same stuff that we are. So I would have been happy, honestly, with just one reason as an excuse to identify with God's family, but the author wanted to make a bulletproof, a bulletproof case for this incredible claim here. So what should we make of this? What should we do knowing that we are God or Christ's brother? I think the obvious is to praise him, to thank him, to know him. He's accessible. He has time for you. He's your better big brother. Another simple observation, but I think one with profound implications, is that we are family. We are a vertical family where God views believers as children of his household, but we're also a horizontal family where the church really is an extended spiritual family. And scriptures replete with statements of, believers being children of God, being adopted into the household of God. And I think it's noteworthy that the most frequent analogy you see when we talk about God and people is words like son, daughter, child, father. I mean, far less often do we see things like servant and master or employee, manager, soldier, commander, follower, leader. Those words are there, but they're often illustrating a specific manner of obedience. But when the Bible's talking about our general relation and interaction to God, it's father-child. And I think that's a beautiful metaphor that has far-reaching implications on how we should approach God, what our love and our devotion ought to look like, and perhaps most significantly, what it means to be a Christian. Being an eternal child of God invokes a complete identity transformation. We don't look forward to a future assimilation with God. It is available right now. If you are fully trusting in Jesus, then you are, right now, a son and daughter to the God of the universe. I mean, that's incredible, to be here and be identified with him in that way. I mean, talk about a sense of belonging and worth. It really takes all the wind out of any self-made sails, whether it's ones of pride and striving or ones of low self-esteem and insecurity. A person who has struggled to keep their job is no different, a son and daughter, as a person who has built their own successful company. A person with a long-term disability has the same son or daughter status as Kyle Fink, who runs the Rim-to-Rim-to-Rim to rim to rim every year. <laughs> now, when it comes to belonging to God's family, there's a single criterion. Is Jesus your pioneer, or are you making your own trail? And it's a, lo- it's a short, logical jump that if we all share the same father, then we should all be spiritual siblings. Moreover, we see a rich, scriptural basis for being an extended spiritual family. Paul refers to believers as brothers in 130 verses in his letters. So this family analogy, it's not just a convenient one that he chose to use. It's normative. It's instructive. The church is a family. It's not a business. It's not a social club. It's not a self-help organization. And yet, with so strong a case for a family, how seldom we see churches actually structured like a family. In my opinion, this comes a great harm to the loss and efficacy of a church, both in shepherding the flock and in impacting the culture. Now, if you wanted to influence the culture, you tell me which you think would be more successful. Which ethos from these two options would have the greater impact? Come join our family, a place where you belong, where people know you. Here you'll have rich relationships that transcend personal preferences or hobbies, ones that are instead anchored in core values in your identity, a family where we care for each other, pray for each other, and do life together. We may not be polished, but everyone is involved and invested. Or a second option, as the world and many Christians see it, won't you join our team? We attend this awesome service that has great messages and talented worship. They also have a big staff with great programs and events. We have the best leader. You'd love his personality if you get the chance to meet him. Now, hopefully, you see the far-reaching impacts of these different dynamics. The family dynamic is about identification, integration, and investment. And the club dynamics about preference, professionalism, and performance. Now, if the church, to you, doesn't feel like a family, then join a home group, and that'll change. I would love to preach a whole message on how the church is a family, and maybe I will if I'm ever assigned Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. Um, but I'm going to conclude this sub-point uh, two statements. One, church structure and administration are not a matter of preference, but a matter of obedience to the scripture. Second, the church's future role in culture is going to be significantly impacted by the dynamic it adopts. Now, while the overall structure and model of the church dynamic should be set by the leaders, the implementation of the ethos comes down to the implementation, or it comes down to every believer, every member. So, brothers and sisters, you do matter. Your contributions here in this church are essential, and they're unique, An Orchard would not be the same without you. So now we come to our last point in our group of verses here. We see our holy hybrid high priest, who helps humanity, in verses 16 through 18. "'For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham.' Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So I'm going to quickly paraphrase this logic so that we don't miss miss the point. I had to read it a couple of times myself. Um, Because Jesus helps humans, he had to have the full human experience himself. Becoming human also qualified him to be a high priest on humanity's behalf and to make atonement on humanity's behalf. And what's more, having had the full human experience, he can completely relate to temptation and truly help people. So do you see how everything in our group of verses, our whole passage, is tying back to the essential and efficacious humanity of Jesus? I mean, these are amazing insights and details about Jesus' role, his character, and the work that he accomplished, but they're all in the context of expounding on his humanity. It's critical to the author of Hebrews that his his audience understands why the heir of all things, why the co-creator, why the divine son would become human. And after arguing for the supremacy of Jesus, he is protecting against swinging the pendulum too far toward docetism. Now docetism was associated with Gnosticism as one of the earliest heresies which asserted that Jesus only seemed to be human, but he was actually a spirit being. Now our passage leaves no room for this. The author has clearly stated that Jesus shared in flesh and blood and was made like his brothers in every respect. It is clear that that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's not 50% God and 50% man. He's 100% God and 100% man. And this is traditionally described as Jesus having two natures, but one person. The Chalcedonian Creed states, His two natures are without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. Now there's a technical term for this called hypostatic union. And that's a theological term that was um, invented or created in Latin to capture this combination of the divine and human nature in one person in Christ. I think maybe maybe Alex Winslow would have gone for the title hypostatic high priest, but I had to look that up, so I went for hybrid high priest since it was simpler. Now, this portion of scripture is actually the first time that Jesus is referred to as high priest. And actually, only Hebrews refers to Jesus as a high priest, and this is the first time. It does so in 17 verses. The next time he's introduces high priest is um, just in the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 1. But then the role becomes... Um, a dominant theme through the rest of Hebrews, starting at the end of chapter 4 throughout chapter 9. And because this role of high priest is such a central theme of a few later chapters, I'm going to be selective on what to cover here. Um, Later passages often focus on Jesus' sufficiency as a single high priest to make a complete sacrifice. But our passage focuses a bit more on Jesus' humanity as the backdrop to that role. Verse 17 does touch on um, the propitiation for our sins, which is an appeasement of the wrath of God. But the key thrust of Jesus' high priest imagery here is that his human nature enables him to relate to our condition and to assist us based on his own personal experience. And I think this parallels very closely the familiar message of um, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. It says, you've probably recited or memorized this verse, um, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, similar to the concept in verse 10 of being perfected, becoming merciful and faithful in verse 17 wasn't the development of new qualities, but the expression of intrinsic and eternal um, Craig Coaster gives a, a helpful comment saying, to say that he suffered to become a merciful and faithful high priest does not mean that he was once callous and only later learned mercy, or that he was faithless and only later became faithful, but that these qualities emerged through testing in ways that would not have been evident otherwise. Now, what a blessing to have not only a loving and a compassionate Savior, but a Savior who is merciful and understands because he's been there before. Jesus doesn't just intellectually comprehend our temptation. He's experienced it to the fullest and conquered it. He didn't easily overcome temptation either just by playing the 100% God card. This verse 17 says he's able to help others because he himself has suffered when tempted. Now, this is interesting. I think often you get different variations, different word choices. But out of the 40-plus English translations that are on Bible Gateway... Every single one of them used suffered and tempted, or some variation of suffering and temptation. And unlike human experience by trial and error, Jesus has experience by suffering and conquering. And so he's able to help those who are being tempted even now. And this word means to come to the rescue, uh, in terms of help, it means to come to the rescue of, come to the help, and to aid. So this isn't sympathizing, this is rescuing It's a removal or a deliverance, not just commiseration. This is a cure or healing. It's not just pain management. So whatever trial or temptation you face, Jesus has been there before and beaten it. So you can look to Jesus for encouragement because he's gone before you. You can look to Jesus for strength because he lives in you. You can look to Jesus for wisdom because he is here to help. And you can look to Jesus for an escape because he will lead you out of temptation. Because of Jesus, we have the motivation to fight hope, and change, confidence to be bold, courageous, and self-controlled. But here's where the rubber truly meets the road. You have to actually look to Jesus. The escape isn't automatic. You have to want to overcome the temptation. If you want to conquer, Jesus can help you conquer, but sometimes that's a big if. To conquer sounds really great on paper until you realize that often means conquering yourself. Overcoming temptation often feels a lot less like victory and more like self-denial. And the word, again, for Jesus' victory over temptation is suffering. So how much truer will that be for us who need to kill a well-nourished sin nature inside? Now, simply being a believer, a child of God and brother to Jesus, doesn't rewire your insides. Like Rick reminded us last week, we get new software uploaded on old hardware. Our minds have been renewed, but our flesh has not. And so there's a fight of the will. There are temptations, and we actively need Jesus' help. This might seem obvious, but how often do we actually cry out to Jesus for help? Do we not often try to overcome trials and temptations in our own strength, by our own knowledge or self-discipline? I mean, we already know the right thing to do most of the time, but how often do we admit that we don't have the resolve to do the right thing? So we need to actively and routinely reach out to Jesus for practical and personalized help. And if you are willing, he's more than qualified. He has a perfect track record. He's omniscient. He's been doing this for over 2,000 years. So as we conclude our study, I want you to marvel at the unprecedented, unprecedented blessing that we have in Jesus. And Jesus has trailblazed your salvation. He's carrying you through it. He has purified you and he calls you his brother. He has freed you from the fear of death. He is interceding on your behalf. He is faithful, merciful, experienced, and wise. Everything is in his control, and he's secured your salvation, your place with him. And despite all of the majesty surrounding him, Jesus is still approachable and attentive. So be honest with yourself. Have I described your experience with Jesus? Does this passage reflect your interaction with him? With regards to relating to Jesus, I think you can simplify or break it down into three groups of people. First, those who are fully trusting in Jesus as pioneer brother and priest. If this is you, then you know the blessings of daily daily trusting in Jesus. Second, those who have believed on his name but are not trusting in his daily guidance. If this is you, then make every effort to truly know Jesus at the personal level. To transcend a transactional relationship for a dynamic relationship. Don't degrade Jesus to just merely a means of avoiding hell. Look to him as brother, friend, and Lord. And a third group of those who may not have yet submitted your life to Jesus leading. Jesus came to bring many sons to glory. Many, but not all. Anyone can be saved, but not everyone will be. Jesus pioneered the one and the only way to path, the path of salvation. So if you want to know more about this path, please talk to me or one of the elders afterwards. But this truly is a rich and encouraging passage, is it not? So let's stand and thank God in prayer for the life-giving truths that we found this morning. Dear Father, we praise you, we lift you up as um, being almighty and yet approachable. And uh, we're so grateful to be part of your family. We don't deserve it, but yet we yearn for it. We look forward to the day when we are in in a perfect harmony with your will and are just grateful for your patience when we're not. In your name, amen.